Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we just sang about in our sinfulness we return again to the righteousness of the Son of Man. And he has washed away the stain of sin. We praise you for that. And I pray that as we enter into the scriptures right now, that you would really help us to see clearly the righteousness of the Son of Man. That Jesus would be glorified. Pray that you would overcome resistance, overcome distractions of our minds and our hearts. That we could really clearly see Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. As we come to this passage this morning, we find that we're in the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Jesus has appeared on the scene and declared that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and he demonstrates the power of this kingdom. We see it as great crowds are following him because he has been healing people of various kinds of illnesses. And we also see it in that the people are astonished at his teaching because he teaches as one who has authority. And so we see the very power of the kingdom at play, so much so that great crowds are gathering around him. So Jesus goes up on a mountain, and with his disciples sitting at his feet, and with the crowds listening in, he begins to preach the Sermon on the Mount. Now last week we covered verses 17 and 18, and specifically verse 17 where Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I mentioned that there was a commentator that I trust that had said these were some of the most difficult scriptures in the whole Bible. And I realized uh, that that was very much true. And part of the difficulty is that where do you begin and where do you end with the way that Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament scriptures? He is everywhere. I thought back to a junior high statement. Back in junior high, we, there was this kick we got on where we'd look at each other and say, hey, just remember, wherever you go, there you'll be. Yeah, it's goofy, but to redeem that, we'd say it a different way. We must remember that everywhere we go in the scriptures, Jesus is there. All of the scriptures point to the person and work of Jesus, Not just in the New Testament, throughout the Old Testament we see that. So when Jesus says in verse 17 that he did not come to abolish but fulfill the law and the prophets, we see that he fulfills it in the sense that he carries it out and he fills it up. He fills up the intent of the law and the prophets. From the Old Testament perspective, they had an understanding of the person and work of the coming Messiah. 
but it was almost in shadow form, as if it was at night. Hard to see clearly what's ahead. But from our perspective, from the perspective of the New Testament, as we look back on the cross, we see very clearly, it's broad daylight, that Jesus, everything pointed to the person and the mission of Christ. So not only is this passage here key for us to understand Jesus' relationship with that of the Old Testament, and that he's in perfect harmony with it, this passage is also key for us to understand righteousness. As Jesus is advancing his kingdom, it will be a kingdom established through righteousness. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, there is a connection that Jesus makes with the kingdom and with righteousness. And we see this in a few areas, even in the Beatitudes. A couple of them, Jesus mentions that blessed are those who enter into the kingdom of heaven. And especially with verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We see in chapter 5, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In chapter 6 and 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So we see throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus ties righteousness to his kingdom. And here in verse 20, Jesus declares that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This would have been an absolute shocking and discouraging statement for the disciples to hear. And in order to understand that, we, we would have to understand from, put ourselves in the disciples' shoes and understand the perspective of the scribes and the Pharisees in that day. When we hear of when we hear Pharisee, when we think of Pharisee, we might think of a bunch of stupid, mean, angry men who hated Jesus. And we love Jesus, therefore we hate the Pharisees. It's kind of a junior high thing. But that was not the case. It wasn't as if, from our perspective, when the Pharisees enter the scene, we hear Jaws music and like, the clouds dark, storms roll in. That's our perspective. But at this time, where Jesus is speaking this, the Pharisees and the scribes were greatly respected. They were understood as the very ones who cared about and loved the very law of God. The scribes were known as the most accurate interpreters of the scripture. And the Pharisees were known as the most devout practitioners of the scripture. It was said that if, if two men are allowed to enter heaven, then one would certainly be a teacher of the law and the other a Pharisee. So when Jesus says in verse 20 that your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, yikes. That would have completely knocked the wind out of the disciples because you just can't compete with the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. I had a bit of a taste of the discouragement that the disciples might have felt last weekend on Saturday. My wife and I competed, and I'm going to use that word loosely, in, in a half marathon. It was the Hospital Hill Run in Kansas City. And uh, in case you begin to think that this is going to be a, uh, an illustration to brag, let me, just, let me just say the bragging has everything to do with the time that you run in a race. And as I consulted with my running expert, who is Bob Woods, who runs these things all the time, I said, what constitutes a good time? What's a fast time from the perspective of a good runner? He said, half marathon, somewhere around 
five-minute miles over the course of 13 miles. I know that's awful. Let's just say we were nowhere close to five-minute miles. It wasn't an easy run. In fact, it must have been apparent to my wife that it wasn't easy for me because twice she looked over at me and said, do, do you want to walk? <laughs> the second time, I just looked at her and gently but firmly said, please don't ask me that again. <laughs> my body was hurting enough. I did not need my, my pride to be dashed all the more. But then, in the course of the race, it happened. It was about halfway through that we got passed by a man that was wearing a funny hat and shorts that were way too short and tight that said, bling, bling, on the derriere. <laughs> and uh, I couldn't take that. I have too much pride. So I set out to catch Mr. Bling Bling. <laughs> but, I, but I couldn't. He was too good. He was too strong. His form was too perfect. So no matter how hard I tried, he just continued to be ahead of me. It was discouraging. So I thought, okay, I at least want to keep up with this guy. But I couldn't because I had to stop for a water break. <laughs> and he was self-sufficient because he wore some sort of belt around his waist, a running belt that had various gadgets of water, Gatorade, running goo. I don't know what all was on his belt. I looked for a Swiss Army knife. I didn't see it. He had everything he needed. He was completely self-sufficient, very discouraged as he continued to run on and I continued to lag behind. See, he was the running Pharisee, full of bling, attracting great attention and awe of everybody around him, completely self-sufficient, strides ahead of the rest, and flawless in his running form, discouraged hopeless, frustrated. It's a bit of how the disciples probably felt with Jesus' statement. Jesus, there is no way that we can catch the scribes and the Pharisees in their righteousness. They've got everything going for them. They're strides ahead. They're seemingly perfect. They've got all the bling. You name it. They set a pace that nobody can exceed. And maybe we can relate with the struggle for righteousness. Maybe we've entered into times of discouragement where it seems that we just can't get it right with this righteousness thing. Or maybe we're anxious because it seems as though no matter how hard we try, it's never good enough. It's never good enough. And maybe we're just not good enough for God. Or maybe we're on the other extreme, feeling pretty good about ourselves because as we look around, we think, for the most part, hey, I've got it together. Or maybe it's confidence. Confidence that Jesus has paid for my sin. Therefore, I'm under grace. I'm forgiven. Therefore, I'm just going to do what I want. Oh, I mean, I won't fall into the, the really heinous sins. But, hey, the little sins, that's okay. Because it's under grace. Or maybe the thought is just trying to be good. And assuming that we'll just be good enough and God will accept us. See, all of these are assumptions of righteousness. But the problem is, all of these are misunderstandings of the kind of righteousness that God calls us to. Jesus speaks of a completely different kind of righteousness. And in order to understand what Jesus speaks of, we have to look at how did Jesus understand and embody righteousness. 
versus how did the Pharisees understand and embody it? And then we can reflect on how do we understand righteousness? So first, how did Jesus understand and embody righteousness? The answer lies in his life and his death and his teaching. In his life, Jesus perfectly understood and perfectly obeyed the law of God. Therefore, he perfectly fulfilled the law of God. And in his death, what we find is the great transfer. We find that on the cross, our sins were transferred to Christ, and his righteousness was transferred to us. He is the one that took the punishment. On a few occasions, I've had opportunity to ask college students this question. Are you as righteous as Christ? And typically when I ask that, there's a few of them that are bold enough to say, yeah, I'm as righteous as Christ. Very bold. But it's correct if we understand that what Jesus did is when God looks at us, he sees in Jesus the very life that we were supposed to live. In other words, he sees that Jesus perfectly loved God and he perfectly loved his neighbor as himself. So Jesus lived the life we were supposed to live, but he also died the death and received the punishment that we were to receive. That is the great transfer. And so because of that, we've been declared perfectly righteous. We call this the doctrine of justification. We've been justified, declared righteous by God. But then do we feel righteous? No. The reality is we do not feel perfectly righteous, and here's where the doctrine of sanctification comes in. That not only does Jesus justify us by sharing with us his righteousness, but he also transforms us. He sanctifies us, making us righteous in a minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour, day-by-day, week-by-week, month-by-month, year-by-year, even decade-by-decade process of growing righteousness into us. God calls us to live our lives moment by moment, confessing our sins as we're aware of them, and seeking his righteousness and clinging to Christ. And it can be very frustrating. Sanctification can be a very frustrating process as we look at our lives and think, I'm not there. And we're comforted at times with verses like Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So what does this mean? It means we are to struggle well, that we are to focus our minds on Christ, who was tempted in every way but never fell into sin. And so when we are tempted in every way, we can look at the one who never fell. There was struggle but never to the point of sin. And we can receive his strength, his power, and struggle well as best we can, fighting against this temptation towards sin in our life. It's when we stop struggling. Think about Christ. With all the temptations, he never ceased the struggle. He was completely, perfectly faithful. He never fell into sin. The trouble is when we stop struggling. The trouble really is when we give up. But instead, God calls us to continue to focus our hearts on Christ. But Jesus also understood and he embodied righteousness in his teaching. A number of times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, You have heard it said, but I say to you. And he's combating the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. You have heard it said, and then the scribes and Pharisees would misinterpret the law of God. And Jesus says, but I, as the Son of God, declare to you. And we must remember, Jesus is in complete harmony 
with the, with the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, but he's in complete disharmony with the misunderstanding and misinterpretation of the scribes and Pharisees. So as the Sermon on the Mount progresses, we realize that Jesus did not expect his disciples to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees in their own game, but rather Jesus redefines what righteousness really is all about. And to understand that, we've got to look at the Pharisees. What was their understanding? How did they embody and understand righteousness? First, their religion was external rather than internal. In other words, they were all about the outward rituals, but they failed to embrace God and God's law from their very heart. And in chapter 6 of the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus warn his disciples in verse 1, be, be, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Jesus was referring to the Pharisees. Because he goes on to talk about how the Pharisees love to fast in front of everybody. They love to pray loudly in the synagogues and on the street corners. They love to give to people who are in need, but they do it all publicly in the sight of everybody. And that's their reward, Jesus says. Because this is heinous in God's sight. The idea is not to seek to do our righteous acts in order to gain the praise of man, but rather to do it in order to receive the praise of God. And Paul picks up on this as well in Romans 2. If you would turn to Romans chapter 2. Paul is clear that the righteousness was always to be about the heart and inward righteousness. Romans chapter 2 and verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. In other words, what Paul is saying is, he's right in the context of especially many Jewish readers who would question, what does it mean to be a true faithful Israelite, a true Jew? And Jesus is saying, it's not one of just outward form. It's one of inward, a circumcision of the heart. It is by the Spirit, Paul goes on to say. So what Paul is saying and what God always intended was that his people in the Old and the New Testament, that they would embrace him from the heart, that they would embrace the scriptures and the law from his heart, which is the very result of God's work in our life. It's got to be the result of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. This theme continues throughout the Bible in the Old and New Testament, especially if you would turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10, and while people are turning, if you're a note taker, I'll give you a few more verses that say this exact thing for your own pleasure later. Deuteronomy 36, Jeremiah 4, 4, Jeremiah 9, 25 through 26, just a few verses that essentially um, carry the same message through, and that is in Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? 
but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in them. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. As we read this, we, we might be tempted to think, wow, this could be straight out of the New Testament. And yes, it could, because the message that God has for his people is consistent. It's always been about embracing God from the heart. And scripture does not speak highly of those who embody surface level religion. And Jesus illustrated this when he referred to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 27, as whitewashed tombs, outwardly beautiful, but inwardly full of dead men's bones. So when Jesus says in Matthew 5 and verse 20, I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We must understand that the only way our righteousness can exceed the scribes and the Pharisees is first, if we're justified, if we've been declared righteous, if God has given us through Christ a new heart to serve him. But the second way is in our sanctification. If we are pursuing righteousness from the heart, not merely outward actions. The kingdom of God is always and has always been concerned with the heart, not merely actions. And as one man put it, says this, if you want to know what you really are, you can find the answer when you are alone with your thoughts and desires and imaginations. The things that are within, which we hide from the outside world because we're ashamed of them, these proclaim finally what we really are. Yes, actions speak louder than words. But what this is saying and the, the reality is, the heart speaks the loudest, and God is the one who sees the heart. And at times, if we reflect on the very things we think about, our thought life, our what we imagine, if we think about others, the thoughts that come to our mind when we see various people, it reveals, in very, it reveals very well our heart and our righteousness. And this is obviously very serious because it really is, it's all about motivations. In other words, even this morning, there could be two people sitting side by side this morning, and they're both singing the same songs. They're both bowing their, hair, their head in prayer. They're both hearing this sermon. They're both articulating the Apostles' Creed. But it could be very true that of those two, one of them is really worshiping. One of them is not. One is trying to please God. The other may try to appease God by simply being in church and doing the right things. Jesus is calling us to do the right things for the right reasons, with the right heart motivation. Unfortunately, the Pharisees, did the wrong, they did all the right things, but they completely missed it because it was for the wrong motivation. And it's sobering. We should really check our own hearts with this message. A second area that they went wrong in, the Pharisees that is, is that of their man-made rules. The Pharisees were a very zealous bunch. 
they were highly committed to a couple of things. They were highly committed to separation. They did not want to be corrupted by the cultures around them that were not God-fearing. So they were very committed to separating themselves out away from the pagan nation around them. But they were also very committed to getting back to the law of God. But here's where they went wrong. Because that sounds good, doesn't it? Not being conformed to the culture, of being committed to the scriptures. But where the Pharisees went wrong is they went above and beyond the law. They came up with 248 commandments beyond the law of God in the Old Testament scriptures. Commandments being, do this. And they also came up with 365 prohibitions. In other words, don't do this. So they came up with a total of 613 laws that go above and beyond the scriptures to regulate their lives. Wow. I can't imagine they'd be a lot of fun at a party. Why would they do such a thing? They built a fence around the law. It was in order to keep them safe. It was in order to protect them. Think of it this way. A few weeks ago, we were at some friend's house, and they have a trampoline in the backyard, and some college students were around. And you just have to know, Ty, our youngest son, who's two months shy of two years old, uh, he loves the trampoline. And so he gets on the trampoline, and he's bouncing. And my wife and I are there. Some college students are gathered around. And he jumps a little bit, watch. Jump some more, watch. Jump some more, watch. And I, probably at least 30 times. It's cute, but it starts to get old after a while. But especially what happened to Ty is the more he jumps, the dizzier he was getting. So finally we realized, okay, we, we, need, we need to protect this child. So we had our college students kind of surround the trampoline, which is great because as he continued to jumping, saying, watch, and get more and more dizzy, there was times where he would have fell off the edge, except the students were there to keep him safe. This is exactly what the scribes and Pharisees did. They built a fence around the law, and they stood there saying, watch, watch, look at us. We've got it. We're safe. We've got it all together. And they completely missed the boat. They sought to make... They sought to make the law doable, essentially. But the problem is, perfect obedience is only possible if we have a perfect heart. And the Pharisees missed the fact that they had a perfect heart. In effect, what they said essentially was, thanks God, but I'll take it from here. I can handle it. I've got it from here. And we see in Matthew 15, if you want to turn a few pages over to Matthew chapter 15, Jesus has something to say about the Pharisees on this particular issue. In Matthew 15, 8 and 9, Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 29, verse 13, when he says this. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. See, outwardly, they were amazing. But their hearts were far from God because they missed the little detail of what the law was always intended to do. And the law was always intended to lead to our need of grace and our need of dependence upon God. The law was never intended to save man, but rather the law was given in order to show us that we cannot justify ourselves. And therefore, the law was intended to bring us to the very person of Christ so our righteousness is to far surpass the scribes and the Pharisees 
in kind rather than degree. In other words, in kind, that it is a matter of the heart rather than degree of us trying to be obedient to as many commandments as we can, hoping that we make the curve. It's always been about the heart. And this is the work of God. It's got to be about the work of God. And this was prophesied that, that the work of God would take place through the Spirit. We see this as the prophets foresaw in Jeremiah 31, 33, where it says, I will put my law within them, and I will write it upon their hearts. And then in Ezekiel 36, 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. So we see that this deep obedience which is a righteousness of the heart, is only possible through the very power and work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But we fall into the rut of the Pharisees whenever we emphasize something that we do above what Jesus has done. When we look at that thing that we might do to attain righteousness, rather than realize Jesus is our righteousness, and we err and we can fall into the rut of the Pharisees when we impose our man-made rules on ourselves or on others, hoping and thinking that that leads to true righteousness. The last area that I'll mention where the Pharisees went wrong is that they were great in their own eyes, but they were not gracious to others. See, they were obsessed with their own righteousness, and they were obsessed with the unrighteousness of the sinners around them. And Jesus is clear. They sought to glorify themselves and not God. They were wrong because they really didn't see themselves accurately in the sight of God. Jesus goes after them, especially on this very point. In Matthew 23, 23, I'm going to paraphrase this. Jesus essentially says, you're doing all this outward stuff and you look great, but you have neglected something. You have neglected the weightier matters of the law, namely justice mercy, and faithfulness. In other words, the Pharisees were doing all these great acts, and yet they neglected to love God faithfully with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. They also failed to love their neighbor as their self, which is what we do. True love has to be bound by both justice and mercy. So they completely neglected the weightier matters of the law, and therefore they had a tragic attitude towards the sinners around them. And Matthew 21, in verse 31, says, Jesus says, those called sinners that you look down your nose at, those are closer to the kingdom than you are, is what he says to the Pharisees. How can that be? The Pharisees had such great command of the scripture. The reality is, the Pharisees did not see their need for grace and dependence upon the Lord. Whereas the sinners, and when Jesus is speaking of that, he's speaking of the tax collectors, prostitutes, people who are down and out, they saw their need for a redeemer. They were closer to the kingdom of heaven than the Pharisees. So we fall into the rut of the Pharisees when we are quick to have a self-righteous and a judgmental attitude that sees the sin in others, but not in ourselves. What has Jesus called us to? He's called us to love our neighbor, He has called us to be a channel of blessing to others. And he's called us to be salt and light to the world around us. And I think it's difficult to be salt and light when we have hatred in our hearts. Jesus loved all the wrong people. 
He loved the marginalized of society. He loved the sinners. He drew them to himself. And that's our calling as well. Jesus makes it clear that the kingdom of God is open to those who are desperate for it. So who are we to look down on? Anybody? So in light of all this, how are we to reflect on our own understanding of righteousness? We must understand that grace reigns supreme in the kingdom of God. It is grace that reigns supreme. The scribes and the Pharisees thought that righteousness reigned supreme. And so they established all their righteousness, but they established it apart from Jesus and apart from grace. But grace reigns supreme. So we surpass the scribes and the Pharisees by having a heart for God. The good news is that if we are in Christ, we are not Pharisees. Because the Pharisees rejected Christ. So if we're in Christ, we're not Pharisees. But we can err in our understanding of righteousness in some of the same ways the Pharisees did. And we can err when we fall into legalism, thinking that we can earn God's favor by what we do. No, we're acceptable to God, not by what we do, but by what Jesus did for us. He made us acceptable. But we can also err on the other extreme, by cheap grace, when we believe that because of Jesus' grace, our sins are covered. Therefore, we can slack off a little bit. We can do what we want to do. But that doesn't take into account what Jesus says here. In Matthew chapter, back in Matthew 5, and verse 19, Jesus says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Greatness in the kingdom of God is measured by conformity to the very character and heart of God. And where do we find the character and heart of God? We find it in the law. We find it in the scriptures. So we err when we fix our eyes on any form of righteousness that causes us to be dependent upon ourselves rather than God. So let me finish by going back to the race. In the race, if you remember, um, I couldn't keep up with Mr. Bling, and he ran on ahead. But at the same time that he ran on ahead, my eyes were directed to something else, and that was another man who was running. That the back of his shirt in big letters said, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I thought, yes, this is what I need. See, the Pharisees were all about attracting the attention of them and their righteousness. But we are to be about focused on Christ. It is Christ, by his very grace and power, that strengthens us. It is he who sustains us. It is by his grace. So grace reigns supreme in the kingdom of God. Jesus is teaching us through this passage that the proof of having received grace is to actually love this and live by this to truly seek to understand the scriptures and apply them to our lives rightly. The whole purpose of grace, in a sense, is to enable us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And this is where it takes us. It takes us right back to the heart of the disciple. It takes us back to the Beatitudes. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Let me do that again. Make sure it's clear. 
Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you shall be satisfied. Pray with me. Father, we praise you for your gift of salvation. We praise you that you, through the power of the Spirit and the work of your Son, that you have enabled us to be declared righteous before you. That is an amazing thing. Lord, thanks that it doesn't stop there. Thanks that you continue to strengthen us and empower us. Help us to pursue righteousness and for the right reasons. Pray that we would be a community that impacts the world around us because of our righteousness. And that because of that righteousness, that we would not um, seek the praise of men, but rather that we would seek to give you all praise. And thank you that you are worthy of all praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.